This is The Human and the Machine, brought to you by Editorial Intelligence. Welcome to The Human and the Machine. I'm Julia Hobsbawm. And I'm Georgina Godwin. On the show ahead, we'll be looking at... We as individuals, I think, are questioning our relationship technology, especially when we see use with children, whatever the different prompt is in your life. And I think the companies themselves are realising that they need the trust of their users in order to be successful businesses. That's the digital pioneer, Martha Lane Fox. Then we have... If there's an experience that you wouldn't do in the real world, not because it was dangerous or because it was expensive, but it was the kind of thing that you would feel bad about yourself. You wouldn't be able to look yourself in the mirror that night or you you couldn't hug your spouse. If, if there's that kind of experience that just makes you feel gross, then don't do it in VR. Jeremy Balenson is a leading voice in the world of virtual reality. We'll hear from him, too. And we'll be discussing... When we're studying psychology, just the human mind and the human brain, we're so far off from machines being able to generate useful hypotheses, yet I don't think there's any example even of that ever happening. The hypotheses come from humans. That's Professor Ted Gibson of the Cognitive Science Department at MIT, and we'll be discussing the best and worst of tech. I woke up to 53 WhatsApp messages from my friend. I think it's because I'm in too many friend groups. That's all ahead right here on The Human and the Machine. Stay with us. So, lots to come on the show. And as ever, my wonderful executive producer and co-presenter, Julia Hobsbawm, joins me. Julia, you and I had a great time meeting our first guest, Martha Lane Fox. We did, Georgina. Martha Lane Fox is now the executive chair, having founded DotEveryone.org.uk, a charity fighting for a fairer internet and building a movement for responsible technology. How zeitgeist is that? She famously was one of the co-founders of LastMinute.com. She is on the board of Twitter. She's a woman whose life in as a public servant and as um, a corporate success story is immersed in technology and the internet. And so we asked her a little about everything and anything, didn't we? This is the human and the machine. How does an ancient history graduate end up on the cutting edge? Complete luck. I mean, I think that despite being uh, rooted in the classics and an ancient history graduate, although not a very successful one, I have to say, history is all about ideas. You know, that's what you're dealing with. Points of change, the new moments of inflection in human endeavour. And so I've always been interested in those points of change. And I then just fell completely by chance into a small consulting company in 1994 that was working in the media and telecom sector. It was a startup. Changed my life because not only was I suddenly in a growing business, it went from 10 people when I joined to 100 when I left. But I met Brent, who was my co-founder in lastminute.com. And most importantly, it was a uh, working in the media and telecom sector, which was being blown apart by the internet. So I got this very early exposure to some of the dynamics of the world that was going to become mine in the future. And it was a world that was available to everyone. And so why has it developed in a way that we can see that there are very few women? Well, I have a bunch of theories about this. I think that It's interesting to look backwards to look forwards. There's an incredible woman called Dame Stephanie Shirley who started a company in the late 60s in the UK. She was a software developer. She employed only women, all working from home, all working on government software contracts like the Polaris Submarine and the Black Box for Concorde. And when you talk to her about what the hell happened, she's like, I have no idea. But she points to the kind of industrialization of 
the IT and computing in the 1980s, the kind of IBMification of it, which became much more sort of managerial and less creative. And she thinks that was a big and important moment in time. I defer to her on that. And then there was another moment in time, I think, when the platform-based businesses that we know now sprang up. One of the great surprises of my life is that Google, Facebook, Amazon, Microsoft, possibly Netflix, own the internet now. It's extraordinary to me. That just did not seem as though it was going to happen in the late 90s. It felt as though it was going to be distributed, open, lots and lots of businesses as opposed to this incredible lockdown by a bunch of monopolies. I mean, it sounds kind of absurd now because clearly power of networks is that they can create these extreme concentrations of power. But because of that, because of the handful of companies and because of the very, very specific culture that those companies have, as in two guys, often from Stanford, who are computer engineers, starting them, then they recruit their friends and that becomes a self-reforming prophecy. So I think you can see in the different cultures of the businesses that have affected technology that they were very different to perhaps some of the early, early days of computing when it was full of women because women were the actual computers. They were the ones entering the information into machines often because they were the cheapest, to be honest. Mm. It's such an important subject and I feel dispirited by it every day and I'm an optimistic, generally optimistic person because I think about my own trajectory. When we started in e-commerce, there weren't very many women but there weren't very many people and then the businesses grew and, you know, arguably a bunch of women did start retail businesses because tend to be more women in retail and then you look at social media and maybe some more influencers and people who became uh, important in those networks were women. So, you know, I felt for a while maybe the dynamics are shifting but now, in 2018, when I look at what I think is going to happen in the future in the next 5, 10, 15 years and the dominant parts of technology I think are going to be cybersecurity artificial intelligence and blockchain and in those areas we're going straight back to zero there are no women there are no women and I could sit for hours and tell you why I think that is but but it really matters because it's about power it's about products and it's about social justice so I feel very anxious about it I don't like so many aspects of what we're creating and if you think about the dramatic rise in the numbers of Alexa sold last Christmas, just a small example. So now we have a generation of young people and children and other people, men, who are shouting at a female device in the corner, Alexa, oh, why aren't you working, Alexa? And, you know, this may sound ridiculous, but culturally, this is pretty bad. I didn't think that we would be in this place in 2018. Sounds like 1818 to me. And then you look at some of the sex box being created and all of the stuff, and I'm not being a prissy person about it. I just think we have to really question what is happening here and how the dynamics of the power that women have fought so hard to get over the last 100 years is being slowly eroded. We'll come back to Martha Lane Fox in a moment. But first... Techno Hell. My name is Dolly Alderton. I'm a journalist, a podcast host and author of Everything I Know About Love. My Techno Hell is... I had it this morning, actually. I put my phone on airplane mode every night and when I turn it off airplane mode in the morning this kind of volcano of WhatsApp messages. I woke up to 53 WhatsApp messages from my... Fa- I think it's because I'm in too many friend groups. <laughs> it's just meaningless, endless, endless kind of stream of consciousness talking. So, yeah, that's my hell. You did found something called Dot Everyone not long ago. Tell us about that. 
I gave the Dimbleby lecture three years ago, and it was an incredible opportunity. As people may know, it's the BBC's way of keeping the licence fee down because you ask an individual to produce 45 minutes of television for free. And so I thought a lot about what I wanted to say and never having been an early adopter in my life, really seriously. Other people have always shown me the things that then I've gone on to do. I did have a sense that maybe the technological world was shifting and that the trust that people... I felt at that point still had in technology was going to perhaps become eroded at a rate of knots and that we should start questioning some of the dynamics of the technology world. When you say you felt the trust was eroding, that was pretty prescient because, of course, now we are in a crisis of trust in the same way that we were in a crisis of trust around certain public institutions and politicians. We're now in a similar crisis of trust around tech. Yes, absolutely, and that's why I feel as though I did get a sense of it and maybe it's just having worked for so long in the sector and feeling a general unease with how it had played out because you know I started life when it felt as though anybody was going to be able to start a business and it was going to be an empowering distributed and incredible tool for people to change their lives for women to have a different kind of economic empowerment and for you know transparency and accountability to shift and actually that didn't happen and the internet is dominated by a handful of companies and a handful of companies from a very small area of the world and all of the things that people now are aware of. So that's what I wanted to talk about. Long answer to how I got to dot everyone and in it I proposed in my lecture that we needed some new organisations to champion the everyone part, not just the corporate commercial side of the internet and particularly to keep a focus on you know human beings in all of this and why we shouldn't just code things because we can. And so that's why we started dot everyone in the end of 2016. We are building a movement around responsible technology. And that means helping all bits of society have a different relationship with technology that's a bit more empowered. So legislators, policymakers, people who will be regulating it, us as individuals who use it, and the sector itself who are making and designing the products and services. So now we're really focused on responsible technology and the system change that we think we need in order to build the best possible future you know sometimes I think it can feel as though you know global internet huge companies it's impossible to make a change we've done a bunch of different things but all based on the research that we did at the end of last year beginning of this year to find out how people actually felt about tech you know there's lots of research from Google showing how many searches people do there's lots of research from Facebook saying how much people love social media but there wasn't very much independent research about how people are actually feeling and surprise surprise as you rightly pointed out although people at an individual level feel as though technology helps them so 50% of people say that every day technology improves their lives only 12% said that it improves improves society. So that's the problem that we're really trying to address. And, you know, I believe it has to happen in a joined up and macro systems way. So we are going to help people feel as though they understand technology better by giving them the tools to question it. We're going to help policymakers and legislators make better regulation about the internet, which I think is important and inevitable. And we're going to help the sector itself and new startups think about what responsible design looks like and how you build products and services that have good consequences, not bad unintended consequences. Does that mean that you're relatively happy with the access policy making in terms of the availability of the internet to people? Because there's been quite a lot of debate in the in the UK about 
broadband speeds or about libraries closing and therefore people actually not being able to physically access the internet. Do you think that's broadly covered by other people or it's happening enough and therefore you're focusing more on the rights and responsibilities? Well, as you may know, I worked for a long time on the digital divide in the UK. I've worked for two prime ministers on exactly that issue and I feel as though the problem is not cracked but it's being worked on in a way perhaps it hadn't been worked on before. 90% of people in the UK use the internet so that's not bad. 10% that can't or don't is a big number but I think that the government's policy has shifted somewhat to cover a bit more skills and training and access particularly for working age adults. You know, I'm never going to be satisfied with this. I don't think our infrastructure is nearly good enough. But Dot Everyone is not a delivery organisation, so I moved the work that I'd done on skills and access into another organisation, and we're focusing more on the influencing and the research and the prototyping of what responsible technology looks like. So one of the things that I'm interested in is how you combine your corporate roles, for instance, on the board of Twitter, with making these big systemic changes which I think are completely overdue. Is there a tension? Is there a resistance? Is there a conflict in any of this? Twitter is often cited as a problem, not not the solution. It's been, even though it's escaped the kind of recent censure of, say, Facebook, Twitter's in there with, in theory, the bad guys. So what's that feeling like and how's that working out? You're exactly right. Twitter is often lumped together. I, however, feel very strongly that I have a much better understanding of what change is probably possible and maybe necessary by being on the board. One of the things that I feel very strongly is that we have to be very deliberate and specific about these issues when we talk about them and often, particularly, you know, politicians in any part of the world right now are not going to lose a single vote by knocking tech. But as you know, Google is not Facebook, Facebook is not Amazon, Amazon is not Twitter. And I think that we have to be very specific and deliberate in what we're talking about, what problem we're trying to solve, if we're either knocking it or plan to legislate it or whatever. So I personally feel as though my working life is much enriched by being across different spheres. And I think that it gives you an understanding of the complexities and of the challenges. But obviously, when I mention regulation on the board of Twitter, it doesn't always go down as well as you might uh, think it does. But, you know, it's important. I think that it's important for a board to have some agitation, some provocation. So, you know, it's a great company and they never shut me down. I can't let you go on this point without asking you specifically about regulation and legislation. Are you for or against the idea of specific regulation that effectively co-ops internet companies. I'm thinking, for example, of those permissions. 89% of people say they don't understand terms and conditions. And I find it astonishing that 11% of people think they do. And 40% of people just click on it without even attempting to read it. So that's just one small point about why I think we do need to make some shifts in regulation. I'm absolutely for regulation. I'm not some crazy person in the Wild West. I don't know what I think about breaking up some of these companies. I don't know if that's the answer. But i pragmatist, right? I think that where we're at right now is that global regulation in quotation marks is clearly an impossibility so countries will have to 
do what they feel they want to do. And maybe there'll be patchwork of regulation, but maybe that will lead to bigger markets taking on the best of the regulation that's been achieved. If you look at what's happened with GDPR in Europe, I've never heard the US talk about Europe in tech as much as I've heard around GDPR. So it has had an impact. You know, I've sat in that data protection legislation in the Lords. It's hard, it's complicated, it's a blooming nightmare in some ways, but there is something within it that is a powerful shift for consumers to be able to demand back their data, to know that um, you have to ask for consent in a different way. Lots of problems that fall out of it. We could talk for about three hours about it, but I think that it is a step forward and it shows that there isn't going to be a different relationship between user and company. So do everyone, after our research, we called for dramatically different terms and conditions. We've called for a consumer ombudsman to help people know what their rights are in this area because one of the issues, I think, is that people don't know where to go. There are hundreds of different organisations and regulators and some statutory, some not, and so on. And I think that we believe in regulation, but we make sure it's not about a specific moment now in 2018. We've got to regulate in ways that mean that we are going to be flexible and adaptable and innovative for the next 10 years, not just to be reactive to the moment now. This is the human machine. If you like this podcast, we can make podcasts for you on any subject. Our editorial team at Editorial Intelligence spans medicine, science, well-being, politics, foreign affairs, technology. And so if you would like more information about how to have a bespoke piece of content audio or otherwise produced for you, please head to editorialintelligence.com. You're listening to The Human and the Machine, brought to you by Editorial Intelligence. In a moment, we'll be having a conversation with Ted Gibson of MIT. But first, throughout the podcast, we examine the best and worst of tech with our techno heaven, hell and Shabbat. Let's start with the good stuff. Hi, my name is Tom Redmayne. I'm Director of Business Development for WiredScore, a property technology company. Uh, my techno heaven is FaceTime. Uh, my brother and his family live in Hong Kong, and that's been made much, much easier seeing the children grow up, especially um, through having those kind of technologies enable us to video conference. That was Tom Redmayne of WiredScore, one of the guests on a previous episode. You can download any of the other first six shows in the series by going to our website, thehumanandmachine.com, or by searching on iTunes for The Human and the Machine. Have a listen. We've got some wonderful perspectives being shared on the great technology versus human questions of the day. This is The Human and the Machine. Now it's time to meet Ted Gibson of MIT. Julia, introduce him to us. Ted Gibson is Professor of Cognitive Science in the Brain and Cognitive Sciences Unit at MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, where avid listeners of The Human and the Machine will recall I went several months ago. He is an expert in investigating why human languages look the way they do and the relationship between culture and cognition, including language, and There's something very extraordinary about a cutting-edge institute dealing with technology. Having uh, an expert such as Ted Gibson taking a frankly um, ethnographical, on-the-ground, almost anti-technical approach to discovering and unlocking some of the key secrets. I found, I always find him compelling when I sit down with him and I hope our audience does too. They mostly do research on 
how language is produced and understood and why human language has the structure it does, both words and sentence structures, syntax, and uh, basically anything about language that might be variable across languages I like to look at, I like to explore. I'm fascinated by a study you've just done on the language of colour, and you went down river in the Amazon to hang out with a tribe armed with very low-tech technology, didn't you, to study the language of colour. Tell me about that experiment. The languages of the world vary radically in how they describe colours. And so the culture around English is very industrialised, and we have at least 11 words that everyone knows who speaks English. Everyone knows black, white, red, blue, green, yellow, orange, pink, purple, brown, and gray. Everyone knows those words, and some people know more, right? So depending on what you do, if you're a painter or you're an interior decorator, you may know many more than those. But when you get to non-industrialized cultures, like hunter-gatherer cultures, they vary a lot in how many words that everyone will know in their villages. And so they go down to as few as two. So some cultures have only a light and dark words for color, which are basically just black and white, and they just don't really describe the main color spectrum in their language. And then other languages will have three, and the third word is always red. So if there are two, then they're black and white. If there's three, it's always a third is going to be red. If there's four, it varies in what the fourth color word, but it maybe it'll be a green or a yellow. So this Chamani tribe is just one of these hunter-gatherer groups that doesn't have very many words that everyone knows. In that group, depending on how you count, at least everyone knows three. They all know black, white, and red, and they know other words for the rest of the color space, but there's a lot of variability in how they label it. First of all, there's this thing called the World Color Survey, and it is created by these guys in California back in the 60s originally. And they observed what they thought was a, a rigid rule such that languages develop more color words in a particular hard order. First two are always black and white. They observed the third is always red. The fourth, they said, was always green or yellow. And then the fifth was the other of those two, green or yellow. And then the sixth was always blue. They had this hard order. And based on that order, they made the claim that the way that words come into a language is based on the visual system. Basically, on the way that some colors just seem more salient to us physically because of our eyes, the way the retina works and where the retina connects to the brain. They saw that so red is just somehow more salient and then green and so on. That's the idea. An alternative way of thinking about this is that it's nothing to do with visual salience. So there's a lot of reasons to actually doubt the visual salience idea. And one of the reasons you doubt it is that it turns out that the total order that they thought they discovered isn't true. <laughs> so, so it is true about red. But after that, there's just huge variability in where whatever cultures bring in whatever words there are. And it's really hard to certainly not yellow and blue are the next in that order. And even in the Chamani, it's just like the way that the words are coming in is not like that at all. But that's true across many, many languages. There's tons of counterexamples. The alternative that we were pursuing is a really a purely cultural one. So it's that you want to label things that you want to talk about. It's very simple. 
it's not the visual systems no different in in the, in the Chimani or any remote color and remote hunter gatherers than, than in ours our visual systems are identical we see the same colors that, as, as they do the, 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 just imagine a sunset sunsets are as spectacular down there as they are down here and there's an incredible variety of reds and blues and greens purples and pinks in the sky the issue is language is not the same as vision you know why do we have a word for a color why do we have a word for any property of an object a standard claim that we are just pursuing is that the reason you have labels for these colors is that when you have two things that are identical except for that property that's when you have a word so yes we see things of all these brilliant lovely colors but there's not two skies and i need to choose which sky it is that is one color versus another color those colors are there but there's no reason to use language to tell someone else about a particular feature of that sky unlike in the industrialized world, imagine yourself in the, and so we're in my office right now, and almost everything around us is an, an industrialized product, which what that means is the color is arbitrary. We make things which look nice to us, and so then we need color words, because we can, we can have two objects which are identical except for color. And then we need a word to tell you which one I mean then. I need to talk about the red one and not the blue one, or the mauve one and not the pink one, which are very subtle shade differences. I need words to pull apart objects which are identical. Now go back to the Chimani, they don't have this because they have very few industrialized objects. Imagine you have a banana which is green versus is yellow. And so yet you imagine you might say that one's yellow and that one's green, give me the yellow one, but it's not like color is the only thing that's different about those two bananas. One thing that's different is one's ripe and one's unripe. And so there's a word for ripe in Chimani, but there's not really a word for green and yellow that everyone knows. Do you foresee a time coming soon where we are going to be more reliant on machines than we currently are to interpret these fundamental truths about the human? Or is it going to be really ethnography-based micro-research-based and interpretation-based for a long time to come? I mean, when we're studying psychology, just the human mind and the human brain, we're so far off from machines being able to generate useful hypotheses, yet I don't think there's any example even of that ever happening. The hypotheses come from humans. The analysis of the hypothesis maybe takes a lot of number crunching, and so you need it, like some computer, it's a lot easier to do it that way. But the hypothesis to start with is all human-generated, and to figure out the model that is going to generate those hypotheses are just so far off, like we're nowhere near that yet. And that was Ted Gibson of MIT. Georgina, you've also been out and about seeing Jeremy Balenson. What can you tell us about him? Well, he's the founding director of Stanford University's Virtual Human Interaction Lab. He started his working life as a cognitive psychologist and he now studies the psychology of virtual reality of VR. He consults pro bono on VR policy for government agencies. He's produced and directed award-winning VR documentary experiences and he's published more than 100 academic papers. He's also done a lot of op-ed pieces for most of the major international newspapers. He's an author and his second book, which I highly recommend to everyone, is called Experience on Demand, What Virtual Reality Is, How It Works and What It Can Do. It's an absolute bestseller and when you have a look at it, you'll see why. And uh, I just want to play you a bit of our conversation. He was so interesting. This is part of what he said. 
My PhD was in cognitive science. My dissertation was a mathematical model that could basically read an argument between two people and then based on the features of what was said, predict how an audience would perceive who would win that argument. And doing some neural networks back in the, in the late 90s, do early machine learning, mostly doing more linear type math on how to do that. But in, in general, what I was doing on my dissertation work was running experiments on people and then trying to model mathematically and computationally what the brain does when you are having some type of experience. Turns out it was a very saturated field. So in the late 90s, there were so many people in CogSci trying to build this AI representation of the brain. And to be honest, there was just a lot of people who were better at it than I was. I just wasn't in love with the work itself. So in the late 1990s, I decided to switch fields. Instead of trying to build intelligence, I decided to fake it. And I went to learn how to build VR. I learned how to build the hardware systems, how to do the programming for content. And at the same time, I switched from asking a very specific question about how the brain works to larger questions about social interaction, about learning, about communication. And I switched fields from cognitive science to virtual reality. So let's have a chat about the tech side of it. If you could talk me through things like tracking frame rates, haptics. So VR, by definition, is a cycle of three things, tracking, rendering, and display. Tracking a fancy word for measuring your movements, current systems track at about 18 degrees of freedom, meaning 18 separate pieces of movement, six on your head, pitch your on roll for rotation, X, Y, and Z for position translation, and the same things on each hand. So current commercial systems track your movement of your head and your hands with a pretty high frame rate, typically a couple hundred frames a second on the tracking side there, and more importantly, low latency. You want to do it very quickly. So a lot of the companies work very hard to get down to about the 10 to 15 millisecond level of how long it takes to measure your physical movement to update the scene. Then there's rendering. Rendering is a fancy word for redrawing the scene. So if I take a step towards you in the physical world, you get bigger. In VR, you track the movement and then you redraw the scene, which is an abstract representation that's basically a bunch of numbers talking about the, where objects are and what color they are. You redraw the scene based on the new position. So in VR, when somebody takes a step forward, you track that movement and then the computer redraws the scene on from where they should be, redraws sight, re-render sound uh, based on the new position. If you're talking and I walk towards you, you should get louder, and then sometimes touch and smell. The final phase is display. You take those newly rendered senses and you replace what the eyes see, what the ears see, and sometimes what the skin feels. You use goggles to show what the eyes see and maybe headphones or external speakers to spatialize sound. And this cycle of track the movement, redraw the scene, and then display the new senses is the bread and butter of VR. All media can be used for good or bad. Just wrote a piece for Common Sense Media, which is a nonprofit organization that helps parents understand technology for their kids. So that's a place you go, you want to know, is this movie appropriate for my six-year-old? And then they'll tell you yes or no. And, and the piece that I wrote, it's what do we know about how media affects us and, and kids in particular? And the word common sense really applies here. Given that we know that the brain tends to treat VR like an actual experience, you know, when you do VR, think of it that way. If there's an experience that you wouldn't do in the real world, not because it was dangerous or because it was expensive, but it was the kind of thing that you would feel bad about yourself. You wouldn't be able to look yourself in the mirror that night or you, you couldn't hug your spouse. If, if there's that kind of experience that just makes you feel gross, then don't do it in VR. What's the next big thing? 
You know, there's a lot of uh, energy in Silicon Valley behind augmented reality, which is the, obviously, you have glasses and you see light from the real world, but you augment that with a digital layer. So that's the idea of you're walking around, you know, London and you're having pop-ups in your vision where you can basically see follow arrows to walk around to, to learn a route or learn about history as you're walking by. To make AR work, most people are using what's called light field technology, which is projecting light directly into the retina. And so you're seeing an energy shifting from looking at screens close in front of your eyes to having a projector that actually beams light directly into the retina. That's one. There's a lot of energy in something called auto stereo, which is a different use of light field technology where you wear no glasses, but you see 3D objects in the room because a series of monitors has refracted light such that you are having a field of light that travels in a way that it would had light bounced off that object. And if you think about those postcards that you move around that give you 3D that you can buy in stores, it's a fancy version of that. I heard that you saved the life of um, the BBC Director General, Tony Hall. Let's just say I prevented, at the very least, an embarrassing moment. And uh, he was doing one of our famous simulations is you fly like Superman or Superwoman. And when you take off, you lift your hands over your head the same way that Superman takes off. With our shaking floor, at that moment of takeoff, you also, the floor booms a little bit. And Lord Hall was so excited during this moment that he just kind of chose to go with it and he dove backwards he tried to do a backflip when he lifted his hands up and you know when i give demos in my lab i have to pay very close attention to safety and i caught lord hall but it would have been a really bad moment for all of vr had i not been there to catch him jeremy balenson it's funny isn't it how time moves trends just the other day we were always on and loving being always on. These days, the smart people know how to switch off. We call it, I call it, Techno Shabbat. And we've asked all our contributors over the course of these first few programmes in The Human and the Machine to tell us their particular blend and brand of Techno Shabbat. Here's one coming up now. I'm Jeff Mulgan, Chief Executive of Nesta, and I regularly do a techno Shabbat, switch everything off, uh, mobile phones, internet, go a day or a week. I've never quite gone a month, but I should do uh, at peace, disconnected and able to recharge the batteries. And you can hear more from Jeff Mulgan in one of our previous episodes. In fact, our entire archive is available for download. Just head to www.thehumanandmachine.com. And if you want to know more about Editorial Intelligence's content, podcasts, reports, conferences, head to editorialintelligence.com. This is The Human and the Machine. That's a wrap for this initial series of The Human and Machine. We all head off for our summer break now. Many thanks for our guests, Ted Gibson, Martha Lane Fox, Jeremy Balenson, and of course, everyone that's made this first series of The Human and the Machine possible. This show is brought to you by Editorial Intelligence. It was recorded at Spiritland in London's King's Cross. The researcher is Alice Fielden. The studio producer is George McDonough. The executive producer is Julia Hobsbawm. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening. <laughs> <laughs>